We're on number 321 of Conversations with Yogananda. How many actually are there? 460. So, 100 more pages. We've done 350 pages. And not that I'm anxious to finish, but you do just get curious if we'll be doing this forever. We're on class number 90. <laughs> so, I have to ask, are there any questions left over from the last time we were together? There usually aren't, but in case there are. All right. Number 321. Several of us were talking about Kriya Yoga with the Master at his desert retreat. Bernard, who was present, told about a man who had come to him for counseling. The man had been practicing Kriya for 16 years by breathing through his fists instead of directing his energy through the spine. The fists are used only as an illustration in teaching the technique. Having you have, you have people breathe through the, you make a, a tube with your fists like that and breathe in and out to give you the impression of the energy going up and down the spine, just like that. It's, you know, it's about a minute of the initiation. But the man had been doing for 16 years, he'd been breathing through his hands. The master first looked incredulous, then laughed quietly with amusement. Well, he said, stupid people will never reach God. (laughs) You know, Swamiji, (laughs) as a rule, master was courteous, so you can only imagine. (laughs) Swami said, master was really quite frank, you know, and, and, uh, very direct and could just really call things as they were, which is, this is certainly a great example of it. But I was talking to a friend of mine. If you love people, you can say almost anything. Because what makes something unkind is if you separated yourself sympathetically from them. It's taken me a long time in a position as a counselor or as a leader for me to really understand that that was entirely the secret of Swami Kriyananda's capacity to work with us is that he just loved us so much that no matter what he said you always felt behind it this tremendous um, understanding and commitment to you so even if what he had to tell you was difficult to hear and you really wished that he didn't have to say it there was just so much support behind it that, that, that the effect of it was that you always felt like it was possible in fact, somewhere, I don't think it's actually in here, because I think it's a quote from Swami himself. He said, you can tell whether you're being uh, influenced by Satan or by God, because Satan will make you feel discouraged. And he said, God and Guru always make you feel encouraged, no matter how serious the problem. And that's actually, that's a really interesting thing to remember. Because a lot of times we get very wrapped up in, oh, I'm not trying hard enough. I didn't do it well enough. How could I be so impossible? But he said, just if you feel discouraged, that's Satan. That's, it's, it really cuts out about three quarters of our mental chant, chatter if you think like that. Because the masters always know that we're going to win. So no matter how they, how they speak to you, their, their picture of us is as self-realized beings who have succeeded in the project. And Satan, if you want to personify that force, which is just the downward pulling force, 
wants you to be committed forever to delusion. So Master could say, well, stupid people will never reach God. But if he were standing in front of the man, he would, be, he would say it in such a way that the man would feel to continue instead of feel like he'd been disqualified. It's fascinating. And also because of that, Swamiji never... Um, Swamiji waited until we would hear it because there was no point in simply getting something off his chest if we weren't going to listen to it. Although sometimes he would say something at the strategic moment knowing that in 10 years you would remember it. There's a story that I told in uh, the book I wrote of, of stories of Swami Kriyananda. Swami Kriyananda as we have known him. And the, the cycle was, um, it, the story was told by Diana, who for many years has been living in India and is a really a stalwart. It was when she was very first starting on the path and as it happened she lived in our ashram house here in this area at that time. She was new on the path and she was excited about everything and somehow or another she'd found out about Reiki so she started learning some Reiki and she was and then Swamiji came to visit and she was talking to him and she was just telling him all about Reiki and how terrific it was and how similar it was to Master's teachings and she was just real excited like this and Swamiji just sort of sat up and, and his response to her was oh really if it's so good then perhaps I should study it like that and you know it just when she looked at him suggesting he should study Reiki it seemed like such a preposterous idea to her that she just said, oh, you know, she, she, I'm not sure exactly whether she responded at all, but in her mind it was, what a preposterous thought that he would study Reiki. He's a direct disciple of Master. It just, it, she didn't even articulate it. But it just passed. The whole incident passed. Ten years later, she said, she just was, I'm not sure what she was doing exactly. The details of the story now escape me. But it suddenly crossed her mind that the reason she had been studying Reiki is because she wasn't deep enough into Master's teaching to realize that everything she needed was right there. That it wasn't necessary for her, especially. I don't want to make a universal rule since so many people do study and practice this. But for her, whose life was really given to Master and she became a leader of our work, why would she need anything else? And then she remembered that incident with Swami and realized that looking at him she saw intuitively that he was so steeped in Master's teaching that anything else was less. Rather than adding to it, it it was just pointless. But he could have, if he had said to her, you don't need Reiki, you're Master's disciple, she wouldn't have understood at all what he had said to her. But by just that, that response, which was so irrational in the moment, it just stayed with her all that time. And ten years later, oh, that was what he was trying to say. It's very interesting. So all of that from Master's comment, he would never have said to the man, well, how could you be so stupid? Or if he did say that, he would have said it in such a way that the man felt encouraged by suddenly realizing that, well, no wonder he wasn't getting anything. Now he would begin to progress in his Kriya practice. It, it, words are the smallest part of communication. We think that words are the biggest part but they're not just to I was recently in Italy and one while I was there they asked me to give several satsangs and I I have always 
had an under I only speak English, I don't speak any other language. So even though I have spoken over there on more than one occasion, um, they have a simultaneous translation system for people who don't speak Italian, but when, uh, when, because they give all their programs mostly in Italian, so if you're from Russia or Croatia or Germany, they have a, a, a simultaneous system. But when I'm speaking English and it all has to be translated into Italian, they, that's most of the audience and they can't do it simultaneously. The end of which is to say it has to be done sequentially. So for me, who anybody either watching this or sitting in this room knows how the words roll out of my mouth, for me to have to stop every 10 or 15 seconds <clears throat> is a real challenge. And, and the way my mind runs, it, it's complicated. But, of course, I did it. And of, and, of course, you have to speak completely differently. But it was so interesting to me how, how much communication there is without words. And for a word person like myself, it's really important to learn that even if you are using words, people are getting vibrations, and the vibrations actually what give people the ideas. The words are, are somewhat extra. And because you, you have to just talk differently, you just say different things. But it was interesting also in terms of communication because I would speak and then Sahaja would translate. And, and at first, you know, when she was translating, I was just kind of spacing out. But then I realized that while she was translating, it was when most of the room was getting what I was saying. So just as I wouldn't talk to you all by talking over like this or sitting down like this or just sort of letting it kind of come... I realized I had to keep communicating even though I didn't know what was being said. It just, it, it was, I learned a tremendous amount from it about how energy puts ideas across. Not that I didn't know. I even wrote about it in the book I just finished about Swami talking about a talk he gave in Rome. I don't speak Italian, but I visited Italy so often that it sounds like language and, and there's enough words that are recognizable. I, I just know enough without being able to speak, that usually, or often, especially when Swami would talk, I could follow it, because also I had an inclination to know what he was going to say. Somebody just walks up to you on the street, you don't know what they're talking about. But, but this one particular talk, I was so intent, and I felt there was so much communication happening, and after it was over, I realized I hadn't, I hadn't grasped a single concept. I hadn't any idea what the content of his talk was, but I felt like I had understood it all. Which I think is also the reason why a lot of times when we would hear Swamiji speak, we would feel like he was answering our thoughts. And I've had people tell me that people feel like I'm answering their thoughts. And I think it's not actually the words. I think that there's a vibratory connection in which, because we don't really teach anybody anything. All we do is awaken their understanding. And so words may, we may feel that words trigger the understanding, but words are not understanding. Words are just words. And when, when we have a real, when Swami would speak, you'd have a real revelation about something. You, you, it still happens on recordings and you just have a revelation. Oh, that suddenly you know something. Where I was recently, I was on pilgrimage in Israel, and we were, there's uh, 
hundreds of thousands of people on pilgrimage there from all over the world, and Christianity has many um, dimensions. And there was a, a very traditional preacher who was just going at it while we were waiting our turn in this place. And I really learned something from him, just a very deep idea. And I just think he understood it, and I didn't. And I just got it. He just gave me a few words, but I just understood what he was talking about, about the nature of divine love. And just like, I had a revelation while he was talking. And it just comes when when we're ready to have it. So, but stupid people won't find God. Yes, you have to take the, the microphone. Can someone hand it to him? Because so much, so much of this audience is online. Thank you. I think that would explain the times where I would hear your Sunday talk uh-huh. and have a, a revelation, but ten minutes after that, I completely forgot what you said. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on yeah. the way home. I know, and you can't remember it all, but you know it was important. It was a joke with Swamiji. After he would talk, someone would say, oh, that was such a wonderful talk, and he'd get this impish look on his face. Oh, he said, what did I say? <laughs> He himself would forget what he said. I mean, because he, he did that on purpose. And then, you know, you just stand there and you just, and you, you would just be desperate to find even one idea. Because in a sense, he, if, if, it, if it was really a flow, he was taking you out of your mind. Not out of your mind, but beyond your mind. Yeah, very interesting. But somehow all that stuff stays with you. And then what happens later on Something happens to you, and all of a sudden you have wisdom in your mind that wasn't there. It depends how you operate. But you suddenly have wisdom that you didn't know was there, that you either offer to yourself or often offer to others. Or you're in a circumstance that would usually make you very agitated. And you're just not agitated, and you don't even know why. But it's all related, because you remember. Um, you remember what happened, and, and you link it. It, it, spiritual growth is very, very different than people think it is. You know, being intellectual about the spiritual path is not being intelligent about the spiritual path. It's only understanding words and not really understanding vibration. Swamiji um, talked about a class he gave once at some university and the context, I don't remember why. It was, I think, before I knew him. And he said... Uh, he had never had such intelligent questions because it was a very fine university and some of the young men, I feel like it was a men's college, were, were sparring with him, asking very good questions, demanding very strong answers, and he enjoyed it thoroughly. But afterwards he realized, he said, but they'll all go home and just think up new questions <laughs> because that's what they do is they think up questions. They don't, and he, he really realized that even though it was fun, it wasn't really his audience. Because he wanted people who, who were capable of receiving the consciousness he was giving them, not people who were just good at arguing with the ideas. So it's, it's, it's... The spiritual path is different. Um, knowledge and wisdom are different. And, you know, we... Being where I was, seeing all kinds of Christians, you could see the difference between knowledge and wisdom. There was a lot of knowledge and a small amount of wisdom, but people were 
I mean, what the effect that Jesus has had on the world is really quite startling. I mean, in Israel, on pilgrimage, you really see it because everybody you meet is there because of Jesus. I mean, not the Israelis, but when you're on pilgrimage, you're, you're following this circuit. Everybody is there because the power of Jesus has brought them there. And they're just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, really, this man was just crucified on a bare hill. Of course, he did resurrect, but most people at the time didn't believe it. And look at it now. Like, where does power come from? We're, we're so enamored of worldly power, but we don't remember any kings and princes. And, you know, you read about them a little bit in history books. And two of them, a few of them are well known, but only because they're mentioned in the New Testament. If they hadn't been mentioned in the New Testament as opposing Jesus, we would never know about them. We have to be um, really careful not to mistake worldly power for real power. We, we have to work out our karma and do what we have to do, but remember, I think, is it in here where Master said to Rajasi, uh, don't forget where your power comes from. And Rajasi said, I, I, don't, I will never forget, Master. I know it comes from you. I mean, just like a little boy. But it, it's really important not to forget where real power comes from, especially nowadays when people who appear to have power and have power over us, and may in fact have power over us in terms of the continuation of the planet or the continuation of our lives. They may have power over us, but the continuation of our life is not to have power over us. It's just to end an incarnation according to the karma of the body we're living in. It's all, um, I had to think about these things a lot in the last uh, couple of weeks. It was really fun. Okay, number 322. From 1950 onward, the Master spoke often of his imminent departure from this world. Now bear in mind, Swami only came in September of 1948. So this is just a little over two years after Swami has arrived. And Master is like not... He, did he die when he was 60? 50? Yeah, 60. So Master doesn't appear to be elderly. And uh, Sri Yukteswar lived into his 80s, and Lahiri lived... Uh, so Master's not yet 60. Swami's been there two and a half years. But from 1950 onward, the Master spoke often of his imminent departure from this world. My work is finished, he said. Well, speaking as I was saying, I mean, his work barely looked finished. Everything was just starting from a worldly perspective. So it, it's like... And in fact, he did, of course, pass in 1952. My work is finished. So what is his work? What was his work? You have to stand back and not be stupid. You have to think about it in a wholly different way. One day I asked him, Sir, when you are gone, will you still be as near to us as you are now? To those who think me near, he replied, I will be near. This he said in such a way as to suggest that the responsibility was ours also. I mean, there's a lot in that. I thought it was Swamiji who elicited that reply from him to those who think me near. And of course, Swamiji, it was a universal answer, but Swamiji was the one who asked the question. And Swamiji was, 
24 at that time, maybe 25, depending on when this happened. I mean, 25, I remember being 25, and you are solidly and strongly yourself at 25. I remember being 10, and I was solidly and strongly myself. Well, now that I say it, I remember being five. (laughs) You know, um, I was solidly and strongly myself. I was watching uh, some babies, you know. We're, We're born with our full consciousness. We don't have language, we don't have context, and we don't have um, the capacity to control our destiny. I was seeing a man just carrying his baby under his arm like a sack of potatoes, you know, and you know how babies are. They just flop like this, and it's so undignified. And it's so, I mean, there's nothing a parent can do. However you hold the child, and they strap them on the little belly things, and they, you know, have to bounce, and you just think, it's just so undignified. And they, they must be conscious of it on some level. Because you have your full spiritual awareness, you have your full intelligence, you just don't have a way to express it yet. And anybody who has anything to do with children, even babies, the, the, the person is just there, and they're communicating with you, and they're experiencing the world, and they're talking to you. Um, so the fact that Swami was 25 was quite irrelevant, because... His spiritual life was what it had always been. But Master knew, because he knew everything, what an important role Swamiji was going to have to play and how much of Master's mission was going to be defined by Swami Kriyananda's work and how almost all of it would have to be done after Master had left this world. So when Swami asked that question, will you be as near to us it, it was an extremely important question for, for Swami to have the right answer because of the future that he was going to have to deal with. So when Master assured him that I will absolutely be with you just as I am with you now, because that's how Swami phrased it too. Will you be with us as, as you are now? Which also was Swamiji speaking of how attuned he was to Master because he wasn't always in his company. And Master said, yes, if, if you think me near. And of course, think me near has a double meaning to it. Meaning, if you believe that I can be there, um, that, but it's not, it mustn't be misinterpreted. And that's why Swami corrects it. Um, the way he said it, he said it in such a way to suggest that the responsibility was ours also, that Swami is, it, there's the meaning think, which means believe, but also those who apply their mind to the reality that I am near. In other words, the thought will bring him, is what he's also saying there. And if you don't have that thought, he won't impose himself upon you. It's not just a question of belief. Someone told me uh, Sunday, today is Tuesday, day before yesterday. Uh, let me just get the whole piece of this here. What was that? Oh, Yes. Anand, who lives in Assisi, was was talking about a meeting that Swami Kriyananda had with the bishop of Assisi. And he had it with the bishop of Assisi because the Catholic Church had written, there had been an article that was published in, the, in a Catholic journal. See, Ananda had written an, an advertising brochure about our community, our retreat in Assisi, 
referring to the blessings of St. Francis and St. Clare that we felt there. And then a Catholic journal had actually written an article about us saying, essentially, how dare we presume to take the blessings of Catholic saints? I mean, can you believe it? But there it was. And so Swamiji decided that he would go speak to the bishop of Assisi, which overall did not go well at all, um, because it doesn't go well, you know. (laughs) And at the end, all of this is to just tell this thing that I don't remember hearing before, where Swamiji said to the bishop, because the bishop was asking Swami if he believed that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior, or if he had accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior. I don't think it was nearly as crude as that. The bishop would be more delicate, but that was the question. And Swami said, well, you know, it isn't so much a question as whether, as whether we accept Jesus. The question is actually whether Jesus will accept us, <laughs> which is a comment that Swami made many times, which is merely for you to declare that Jesus is going to save you is just a teeny bit presumptuous. I mean, you can believe that he's capable of saving people, but just to think that you can declare it without Jesus also accepting responsibility for you and knowing that stupid people will never find God. I mean, the the guru has to also recognize you. And, And one doesn't like to drive too firm a point on that because most people are so insecure and have such a sense of not being worthy that that can make you really, really nervous. But Anand said that when Swami said that to the bishop, the bishop stopped for a moment and said, now that's a very interesting point. And it was more like, not like he was rejecting it, but that he was realizing, yes, of course, if we don't ourselves magnetize that consciousness, we can't just passively go on with our lives and think it's a done deal. It's just, that's just not true. There's a famous, um, famous, become famous story about Sri Ramakrishna, the avatar in India from the 1800s, late 1800s. Um, He died just before Master was born. And one of his very well-known disciples, one of the first to declare um, Ramakrishna an avatar, was a very famous Bengali playwright named Girish Ghosh who was a, a, a big figure and helped create um, the, the theater in the Bengali language. And he was a, a libertine, just in every sense of the word. He, he lived a very dissolute life, and lots of the um, actresses, at, at, at first women of, of quality would never appear on the stage, and so it, it was the custom for men to play the parts of women. But he, but he discovered that... Um, prostitutes could make good actresses <laughs> and he brought a lot of women up from uh, l- lives that were quite degraded and put them on the stage and they became they, they, they got a much better profession than the one they'd had before but I mean that gave you an idea of where where he was living and theater people were not considered to be high caste at that time and uh, so but he, became, he had a huge heart and he was completely devoted to Sri Ramakrishna. But he was also very honest. And so when, when Ramakrishna was, when he was trying to get Ramakrishna to take him on as a disciple, 
Ramakrishna kept saying, well, you have to also do your part. You have to do, do japa, you have to meditate. And everything he suggested to Girish, Girish said he couldn't do. He couldn't even promise, he didn't even have an ordinary morning and night because often he would stay up all night. He had no regularity to his meals, to his sleep, to anything. And even when Ramakrishna said, well, when you wake up and when you go to bed at night, just say the name of the Lord. And Girish said, I'm not sure I can promise that and because of this. So finally, Ramakrishna said, give me your power of attorney, which is to say to give me legal rights over your life. You know, like if you give someone power of attorney, then they actually consign any document on your behalf, commit you to anything that they want to commit you to, and you've really turned over the responsibility for your life to him. And Girish thought that sounded easy. So he just said, yes. But then he, in his way, he beautifully talks about, as the years went by, he gradually began to realize what he had done, that he just simply turned over every aspect of his life, and slowly by slowly, he gradually became a model disciple, and his entire life reformed, and his devotion inspired everyone. But it was just that little, he tricked him. And he often said afterwards that Ramakrishna tricked him that he wished he had accepted one of the simpler orders that he'd given him. <laughs> but that's also what, what Master says, is that the possibility is there. The sun is shining. But if the window blinds are closed, it really doesn't matter how intensely the light is shining. You have to op- open the curtains before it'll come in. You have to have the thought. You have to even remember that Master exists. I mean, just even to remember. And that sounds simple, but it isn't simple. You have to remember that he's there. I had a difficulty once. I was, this was back in the late 70s, uh, when Swami moved to San Francisco. At that point, I, went, I was there for a few months, and he was making recordings. And I, I was his recording engineer, which only tells you that there was nobody at all qualified around, because if I qualified to do that kind of work, which is technical, it was, I was really bad. We just had this reel-to-reel tape, and he made this solo chanting album, and he would record it in his apartment late at night after he'd finished his classes. We'd go back to his apartment, and then he'd play his harmonium and sing. And, um, and one night, I just could not, I could not get the sound to come out on the tape. I, and I just couldn't figure out, no matter what I tried, he would sing, or I would then, he, finally he went off to meditate. I would speak into the microphone, and it just would not appear on the tape. And finally, I, I mean, after about a, a half an hour, an hour of struggling with it, I finally decided to pray. <laughs> Until then, I had just been trying to figure it out. And so I said, Divine Mother, if you want this recording to happen... You're going to have to do something because I just can't, I can't make it work. And then I pulled out every plug, every single plug. I disconnected every plug and I plugged it all back in exactly the same way and it worked. I mean, maybe there was an objective explanation for it, but I certainly don't know what it was because I tried everything. The next night Swami was giving a class and he, he asked me to come up. He said, uh, Asha has a testimonial she wants to give. And I just walked up very confidently, and then I said, what? 
You know, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> because Swami had come out after his meditation. I said, it's working. He said, what did you do? I said, I asked Divine Mother to help me. I was sort of embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, you know, pleasant way. So he said, well, just tell them what happened. So I told the whole story, but the end point was simply this. These teachings will work, but they won't work unless you use them. That you have to remember to use them. And it was so obvious. But I hadn't remembered that whole time. I just thought I was all by myself, doing something for myself, and I was the only one involved, and I had to solve it. So, you have to have the thought of Master. He won't help you. And even, I mean, especially at the beginning, it really is a thought. You have to constantly remember it. As you get more habituated to it, it's almost like it's with you all the time. But still, it's in your conscious awareness that I am not alone in this world, that I am the disciple of a great master. And that it's not, you know, that I have to ask him to help me. And if I remember to ask him, he will. But if I just passively presume it, I can't count on it. I remember this man who'd come to Ananda village and Swami really liked him. We all really liked him. He had leadership potential. He was was just a... He was a man with a lot of strength, and you could feel that he could be a real leader just because he had that magnetism. But he had fatal flaws, and he became enamored of some other something or another. I don't remember anymore. But he he was talking to Swami. His mind, he came to, to ask Swamiji about his new plan, but his mind was made up. So there was no point for Swami really to say anything because... The man was not really looking for advice. He was just more or less informing Swami. Swami tried. And then as as he was leaving, the man said, well, if Master doesn't want me to do it, he'll have to tell me. And I I was there for the interview, and the man walked out, and Swami turned to me and he said, why would Master answer a prayer like that? You know, like, if you don't want me to do it, you have to stop me. There's no real humility in a request like that. It's like, I'm going to do it if I want to, and you try to stop me, almost, is what he said. And, of course, the man just drifted off and accomplished very little after that. But that's how we have to always be ready. And if you get no answer, I, a, a woman wrote to Swamiji once, and she had a very, uh, a very specific decision she had to make. She either had to do this or she had to do that, and they were mutually exclusive options. It wasn't one of those, which is, shall I wear the pink or the blue dress? And it really didn't matter. It really mattered. I mean, it appeared to matter. And she said to Swamiji, I just, I pray and I pray and I just can't get an answer. And Swami said, oh, just take either choice. It really doesn't make any difference. He said, Master is very pleased that you wanted his advice. So sometimes it happens very differently than we think. You just, the, the, the choice is not, is not a, a significant one. The issue is whether we remember. And then we remember to take Master with us. Also in that book of stories, one of my favorite ones is from this man who was addicted to drugs. And his story began, you may think that being a disciple of Master and practicing Kriya is impossible when you're also a drug addict. (laughs) He said, you may think you can't do both at once, but but I did. I'm here to say you can And then he said, you might not be surprised to hear that my favorite expression of Master's was, 
if you're going to do something that God might not approve of, just take him with you. And so he said, so I took Master to a lot of places I don't think he would have gone on his own. (laughs) But then, just to finish that story, which is a very moving one, the poor man finally reached his limit, and he was out somewhere like in the middle of the woods. I don't know why. In the middle of the woods, and I don't know whether he had drugs with him or what he was doing, but he said he absolutely just really realized that he could not go on as he was. And he prayed, he may have prayed out loud, this desperate prayer, Master, you've got to stop me. He said a minute later he was surrounded by policemen who had drawn guns and searchlights on him. And he said, and even as it happened, he said, wow, that was fast. (laughs) And he was hauled off to jail, and that was the turning point. And he also writes, he said, you may not think that being stripped to your underwear and thrown into a cold, solitary cell would be a blissful experience. He said, but it was. Because he felt that you know, after all that time of struggle, he'd finally reached the point where God had really heard him and was taking him in hand. And then everything went on after that. Who's to say? I mean, we tell these stories because it helps break apart our little tiny picture of who we're supposed to be and how this is supposed to look. And I behave this way and God responds that way. And if I have these thoughts, obviously I'm not worthy. And we just torture ourselves where God is just sitting there waiting really I mean they're not impatient but if you know if the gurus were they'd just be waiting for us to just have the slightest semblance of what it's really like which is there's something else where did I hear this it's not I, I always like to know what the source is it was from Swamiji but I can't remember why where I heard it. He said, uh, the way creation works is that it takes us a really long time to understand that self-realization is the goal, and then it takes us a long time to achieve self-realization. Therefore, it must mean that all the experiences we go through are necessary. All the experiences we go through are necessary because we go from complete ignorance to complete realization. And it's set up for it to take a long time. And the reason it takes a long time is because we have all these experiences. We're we're compelled by our desires to have all these experiences. And all of these experiences show us the folly of having those experiences one way or another until it finally... turns us to realize that everything I was seeking was with God. And, and we finally get there. So nothing can be wrong or wasted. It, it just, we can make better use of it, like my ex-drug addict friend. You know, just take God with you, even if you think he might not want to go. But in the end, we actually know. We weren't just told and we weren't just suppressed. We actually experienced When you suppress something, it means that you still think it will make you happy, but you think you're not allowed to have it. When you transcend it, 
or when you work for transcendence as, as opposed to... So suppression is, oh, the, the church says I'll go to hell if I do this. The rules say I'm supposed to do this. This is a sin. This is bad. You know, but, you know, but I, part of me really believes I would be happier if I didn't, did it, but I won't be because God wouldn't like it. You sort of play that game out. So you, 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 you think it's good, but you wish you could get away with it. Swami said once you say that if you commit a certain sin... If you, you know, that you'll only be saved if you're good and you'll be condemned to hell if you're bad. He said, sooner or later you ask the question, how bad is too bad? <laughs> how good is good enough? <laughs> because you're, you're wanting all those realities. So you, you try to make the bargain and as a result you end up with this huge theology which defines it all to the nth degree, which is also being in Israel recently. My gosh, look what they've made of what Jesus taught. It's just gone, you know, from the simple, the simple man that he was and the simple teaching, relatively speaking, deeply sophisticated and, you know, highly evolved, but simple, into all of this complexity. But, um, but when you transcend something or even work for transcendence, even if you're still drawn to it, a part of you knows that that path is not going to fulfill you. And you know it not because you've been told that you'll go to hell if you do it, but you just know that, that the, as one of my other drug addict friends actually said, <laughs> that the, what they used to call the front side and the back side of drugs, for some reason that's what I'm talking about tonight, my drug addict friends I knew 30 years ago, or that should put it differently, they were drug addicts 30 years ago. Um, that when the front side and the back side are just the same, that's when you stop. When you, you, you know that as soon as you start the positive effect of it, the negative effect of it is so close behind it that you no longer can enjoy the beginning of it. And it's a, it, I remembered that from all these decades ago. These were also very spiritual people who all eventually ended up on the path. But anyway, that's where they were. But I've always remembered that the front side and the back side end up being the same. And that's when you begin to transcend. Because even though you know I'm going to enjoy this a little bit, I'm not really going to enjoy it in the end. And therefore, if I can really not do it, I will be a lot happier. And whether it's a giant ice cream sundae or a, a, a drunken weekend or um, uh, you know any other kind of compelling sexual energy or anything like that, you might be drawn into it, but you know that the other side of it is going to be terrible. And a fit of anger, anything. That's when you transcend it. You're not suppressing it. That's how when people will tell you, oh, you're just suppressing it. No, actually, I'm not. I may have to restrain myself because a part of me still has that inclination. But I'm not suppressed. I, I really understand. I really don't want to do it anymore. And then you reach the point where you behave in such a way that People think that you have no life. <laughs> but it's just, it doesn't interest you anymore. I remember, and I've told you all before, when they, they used to have this small nightclub, which was across the street from where our church was when we were way over on, in our storefront church again many years ago. I came out from some wonderful evening class in this very uplifted mood, and I could feel the the base through the sidewalk I could feel it through the concrete and through the street and just through the airwaves it was pounding in on me and there were about 200 people lined up to get in it was just opening about 10 o'clock at night 
And really, I felt like they were all going about to go into hell. And they were so excited about crowding into this place. And I thought, if you put me in there, I would just be, it would be a nightmare for me. But we, they looked like nice people. You know, it was just like, on the, I could have been friends with any of them. But they were still enjoying it. And it was a necessary experience. To merely persuade them to suppress it would only mean that suppression has to come out later. That's, why in the, that's, what, that's what Krishna is referring to when he says the phrase in the Gita is, of what avail is suppression? Meaning, what will it avail you? What will it give you? It won't give you anything. Swami says if you suppress energy, it merely comes out in some weird way later, is how he put it, when it's much harder to deal with because you don't know where it's coming from. Which doesn't happen if you're a yogi. But if on the yogic path you, you confuse the two and do suppress your energy rather than work for transcendence, it does just come out in some strange way later. A lot of people, especially in the 60s and 70s, even still, people get an idea in their head of what they're, what's supposed to look like to be a devotee and they start behaving accordingly. And there was one lady who she always wore white. She always carried a little book. And whenever, any, whenever anybody got too excited about anything, she would kind of look piously off and read metaphysical meditations, you know, like this. And always spoke in a soft voice. And then she had a mental breakdown. You know, just really one of those very dramatic ones where you think it's the end of the world and you take off all your clothes and you're going down the street. You know, just, I've known people who do that so it doesn't frighten me. It's just something that happens. And then she recovered and after that she was such a terrific lady. (laughs) She was kind of raunchy and a little, you know, out of the box and she was marvelous. Far more interesting than she had been before. But all that suppression of that natural exuberance and very sort of unusual energy just cracked her. But then she really began to become a devotee. What can you say? And these these are very important, extremely important. My gosh, I've talked for a long time on those two things. Well, there you have it. So I'll do one more and then we'll take a break. Dr. Diradwan, an eminent psychologist, had several private meetings with the Master. He exclaimed during one of those meetings, how fortunate it is that you came to America at this time in history. People are more ready to receive you after the troubles the world has seen in this century. So this meeting was probably after Swami was there. So that would have been after two world wars. And the Master concurred. Fifty years ago, he said, they would have been indifferent. And that's a very important statement, especially considering that Master has predicted that the world is not going to stay peaceful for very long. And it's hard to imagine that the world is going to stay peaceful for very long when you see everything that's going on around us. But because the world had, because so much sorrow and suffering had been imposed on people, it was occurring to them that maybe true power and true security lies in a different area. Just as simple as that. Once again, these are, these are these things that we, you have to completely shift the premise of your life. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that we stop acting the way we act because our karma compels us to raise our families, to follow our careers, to build businesses. It's very relevant that the two most advanced disciples of Master were both self-made millionaires. I believe Mr. Black was self-made also. Mr. Black and, and James J. Lynn, Rajasi Janakananda. Both of them were not merely successful. They were both extraordinarily successful and did, all, and did it all themselves. So it wasn't like they just were born wealthy and then were able to spread the largesse. They applied their willpower with tremendous energy. And Master also had tremendous admiration and dedicated autobiography of a yogi to Luther Burbank who was another, you know, scientific innovator who made really enormous things happen in the world. So once again, we have to sort of, we think, well, this world's a dream. It doesn't really matter. All that matters is our spiritual life. And we have this false idea that that means we can just sink down to low energy and do nothing. But the real examples, and Sister Gyanamata, even though she didn't have a career, um, she didn't come to Master until she was, I think, in her 50s. Maybe she was 60 when she became a nun. She had raised one child and she'd served her mother and she'd help her husband, helped her husband have a very successful career. Her husband said, she writes all my speeches because she knows my thoughts better than I do. <laughs> but in a very quiet way, she was very, she was constantly dedicated and worked the whole time through. So it's, it's not that our spiritual path makes us lazy or uncreative. And look at Swami Kriyananda. I mean, the man never stopped working. And he worked so efficiently and so forcefully that he just, he did 10, he did 100 lifetimes of work. I mean, a person writes a couple of books and they feel like they've done a lot. Swami wrote 140 or 150. Some of them admittedly were not long, but still, they were all good. And um, so, what happens to us is when the difficulties of the world begin to oppress us, we can't try to take a low-energy way of dealing with it. What self-realization is, is that you, you, you increase your energy, the quality of your energy, and the quantity also of your energy to such an extent that you can live above what's happening. And that does not mean it won't touch you, but that means that you will still live above it. Um, when I went to Israel three years ago, for some reason, I was extremely conscious of the politics of the region, and it influenced my entire trip, and it made me say that I would never go back, because I just felt so uncomfortable with what was going on there politically. Well, you know, I had still had very good spiritual experiences, but I, it never left me. I would see the borders, I would see the um, Palestinians, and I just was constantly conscious of it. This time, it was exactly the same circumstances, and I just had a complete flip in my way of thinking about it. God knows why. God knows why, and I don't. But all I could think of was what was, well, the more violent, war-torn, impossible an area, the more devotees ought to go there, the more reason to be here the more powerful the capacity then to not only experience the light, but also to bring the light. And I just moved through with complete indifference. 
and, and it wasn't an indifference to whether the you know nuclear war was imminent. We were all about to be vaporized, but I'd rather do it there. That if I'm going to have, it's going to happen to me. It might as well happen there. It was a good place to die. Not that there was anything going on that would cause that to happen, but it's just like it all just depends on our point of view. And when we begin to see troubles in the world and recognize how completely insecure our position is. I mean, just recently, just before I came in here, I've been out of touch for a few weeks, but these wildfires in California, this town of Paradise, which is not that far from Ananda Village, far enough that we're not in danger, but close enough that it was our region, and I lived up there for a long time, the entire town has burned down. It's just gone. It's like, oh, look at that. Just gone. When we, we had the earthquake here, and now it was 1989, a long time ago, I was inside our apartment, and it's a wooden building, and it was just moving. I mean, it was good that it was wooden. It didn't just collapse. It just kind of wiggled a lot. I thought, oh, the building is shaking. I mean, I knew it was an earthquake. The building is shaking. That's dangerous. I better go outside. So I ran outside, and of course, the earth was undulating, which really does weird things to your mind, incredibly weird things, because it's just like, the you know, it takes a long time to get over the thought that this really isn't happening. How could this be happening? But then, even in the moment, I had the thought, earthquake proof is oxymoronic. <laughs> because if God wants to take it down, he's just going to take it down. There's just nothing man can do against something like that when Ananda village burned, which was decades ago now. And that fire, we watched that fire come in, came up the hill. All our houses were in this very wooded area. It just came up the hill. It went to the bottom of this tree, seven years of drought, you know, the kind of thing we're dealing with. The fire shot up to this top of this very tall tree. And then the fire started tree topping, is what's it called. It just starts, you know, just blowing across the tops of the trees. And it was just like, huh. You know, what a joke that we could even, for a second, think we can stand against these things. So you you go one of two ways. You either panic, and then you go into a real small, protective, I need to keep all my stuff in order all the time, or you just let it go. Jyotish, we had about 10 minutes to try to get stuff out of those houses once it started to burn, and most people... Most of the houses had to be, tried to be rescued by people who didn't live there. And we'd never had an experience like that. Now people have little boxes. If there's a fire, take this. But Jyotish, this is how it was told to me, whether it was actually apocryphal or actual. But I was told that Jyotish went to his house and someone shouted to him, grab everything that's most valuable to you, which was a really bad thing to say to a philosopher like him. Because he walked in and he thought, what in this world is of value? <laughs> and uh, Davy had had just taken all the things off their altar and they were all in a little box because she was cleaning it. So he picked up that and virtually nothing else. He d- it was more like, I'm just not going to grovel in front of this. And he just walked out. And they had just had a baby. Fortunately, somebody else came in and took a few of the baby's clothes and a few other things like that. But it's just... In that moment, that just his mind, his really his mind wouldn't go there. His mind just wouldn't go to little things on this planet. Divine Mother's doing what she wants, and, and it was really actually it was really quite beautiful. 
and a wonderful thing to remember. So, 50 years ago, he said people would have been indifferent. So maybe our own indifference may have to be stimulated by world changes. But as devotees, and I I really felt that in Israel, as devotees, you can really move to another dimension. And then I believe you become uh, uh, the one who brings brings energy to it rather than the one who, who loses from those things. So let's take a couple of minutes break and then we'll talk some more. All right, any comments or questions on my little exhortation from the first half? No? Okay, number three, two, four. To a doubting disciple, the master said, don't dwell on your doubts or God won't keep you here, meaning let you stay at Mount Washington. That's an interesting way to put it, or God won't keep you here. Um, Many, many, and this is Master speaking still. Okay, Master says, don't dwell on your doubts or God won't keep you here. Many come expecting miracles, but those who have realized God never show their powers unless God directs them to. People don't see that in that complete humility lies the greatest miracle. If I were to perform miracles in public, I would attract crowds of followers. But that isn't the way God wants it. Very interesting. Um, Master did do more phenomenal things when he first came to America. One of the reasons that he was such an extraordinarily popular speaker is because he did do things that were outside the norm. Sometimes he would have... uh, he had, he had doctors come on the stage and he would show that he could have a different pulse in, in different sides of his body. He could stop his pulse on one side and keep it going on the other. He did feats of strength, demonstrated feats of strength, and um, he healed. He did healings. One of the, one of the uh, advertisements for one of his talks was, you know, divine transformation by superconscious healing methods. The Swami will administer healing to the whole audience. And then it says, bring your sick friends. <laughs> he had this man named Rashid who did a lot of his advertising. <laughs> bring your sick friends. That's my favorite part. So Master did at the beginning. He attracted a lot of people by showing his power. So there's several things here. First, let's start with, don't deal with your doubts or God won't keep you here. You know, sometimes Master said things that you, you philosophically are, make you kind of panic. But what he was really saying is that if you continue to n- not accept the blessings that are in front of you, then you will have to go somewhere else and learn to either perceive them or to appreciate them. You know, dwelling on your doubts, the particular way he puts it, dwelling on doubts is there's this positive and there's this negative in front of me, but I'm always going to look at what I'm not sure about, what I'm going to be afraid of, the, the place where I wonder. I have all these good experiences and then the place where I wonder. Swami Kriyananda mentions that when he was a young monk, he said he never had, he's, he's never been inclined toward visions or miracles or things like that. It just hasn't, he said, well, let me phrase that differently. 
Swami always spoke that way. He said that isn't how his, his spiritual life manifested. And one of the monks who was there, who had the name Daniel Boone, which, as Swami said, the unusual, unlikely name of Daniel Boone, used to have constant visions and constant experiences. All these different things happened to him all the time. And Swami would think to himself, you know, gee, if even just a little bit happened to me like that, that would be great. But Daniel Boone left the monastery and eventually left the path altogether. And Master Swami realized later that Master was trying very hard to save him by just giving him all these experiences so he would, he would have some faith in what he was doing and faith in himself. But he lost it all in the end. So when you dwell on your doubts, there's often all these things over here that are reasons for you to have faith but if you keep insisting on rejecting all those reasons, all those reasons to feel positive, then God won't keep you. He'll just let you follow that thread to its natural conclusion because you obviously need that experience. But a certain amount of it is a choice as to which way you put your mind. I was talking to a friend recently and she's plagued with a lot of self-doubt. But she's a very extremely strong and very capable person and I kept pointing out to her all the strong and capable things that she can do you've accomplished this you have this education you're very good at this very demanding profession you know I said listen to yourself walk across the room I said nobody without a spine would step as strongly as you step I mean really you know just really forceful I said I suspect you define yourself by all your weaknesses just as simple as that because I didn't know her well it was just like yeah it just never occurs to her to think about all the positive that she does she spent all her time thinking about what the weaknesses and the weaknesses also exist but faced with two realities why would you choose one there's nothing that compels you to choose it they're they're equal like this I had a funny experience with my friend Nidruva Nidruva is is of African-American descent. And we were having a discussion once about various people that she knew in her life. And when she went to college, her karma was to be associated with people, many people who became nationally or even world famous. It was just her karma. She instead came to Ananda. She probably would have gone that same route. But she was talking about a woman whose whose mother was, was black and her father was white. And her mother, one or the other of them, was an, a, a well-known celebrity of some kind. I don't remember who. But she was talking about how the woman identified with being black and so on like that. And I said, well, she's half white. Why didn't she just identify as white? And Nidruva just stared at me for a few minutes until I caught on. Because she doesn't look white. (laughs) You know, she's just obviously of mixed race. And so there was no way she could just declare herself white, even though she was equally half and half. But I realized just from that example, oh yeah, well, because see, I was Jewish, and but I don't look Jewish. So if I decided not to be Jewish, I could pass easily. And that was sort of what was half in my mind when she was saying that. But a lot of times we're half weak and we're half strong. And we can pass for either one. It just depends a lot on which way we look at it. But if we, whatever we concentrate on, we'll get drawn in that direction. And when he says God won't keep you here, it's not that God will punish you, 
but that God will say, all right, if you insist, if you insist that you just really need to suffer and really aren't going to be a disciple and can't be here, then I won't keep you around. I'll just let you go. It, you know, it's, a, it's a harsh way of saying it, but it's also true. It, in other words, <clears throat> the relationship with God is like any other relationship. If you're in a close relationship with someone and you constantly think about all the things you're not getting and all that they're not giving you and all the reasons why you're not really loved, sooner or later, whoever that person is, is going to let you go because it's just not going to work. And they just, they'll grow tired of it and they'll realize that it's, it's not reciprocal. And that's, that's the relationship with God is exactly the same. You, if you don't appreciate the blessings, if you don't receive them, if you don't express gratitude for them, if you don't use them, then it's just gradually the blessing is withdrawn. And it's unfortunate because it's not like you just get another such opportunity. It's, it's God doesn't, you have to earn it again. You have the good karma to be brought into a spiritually uplifted place. And if you disregard it, then it's a while before the wave comes back. Um, it, God is not merciless, but nonetheless, there's just a factor. You start in a direction and there it goes. And then he says, many come expecting miracles. So he you know, might be talking about, well, you know, how do I know he's a true master? He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't turn water into wine. He doesn't show me anything. But those who have realized God never show their powers unless God directs them to. In other words, there's always a purpose in it. It's never done just casually. Remember an autobiography of a yogi where, I don't remember the context, but where Master um, Sri Yukteswar was giving Yogananda a lesson and a, a lamp had been lost. Sri Yukteswar had shown himself to be capable of knowing, of having powers of knowing beyond the senses. So some lamp was lost, and Master Yogananda just went to Sri Yukteswar and said, where is the lamp? And then Sri Yukteswar carried out an elaborate detective routine, questioning everyone and tracing down who had it last and where they might have left it. Then he, you know, very wisely suggests, go look by the well... And then he goes and finds it, all just to show Yogananda that it's just we don't do this casually. We don't just we just operate in a normal way unless God tells us to do differently. When Master, there's a story about Master going into a house where someone had died. It was the house of a relative of his, and someone had died. And Master went in and brought that person back to this world from the astral world. And then one of the disciples asked. Um, did you go there because it was your relative's house? And, and Yogananda said, no. I went there because Divine Mother told me to. The fact that it happened to be a relative had nothing to do with it. I would never have gone there just because it was a relative. I did it because Divine Mother told me. And the way Swami tells, told the story, Master looked shocked at the very idea that I would use such a God-given power for merely personal reasons. So... But then he says, people don't see that, that in that complete humility lies the greatest miracle. Now that was so interesting to me. I was thinking about that a lot on this pilgrimage because um, the way 
the experience happened for me. I had no responsibilities, and I, I've led a lot of pilgrimages, so I know what it is to have no responsibilities. I know how to be a pilgrim. To be a pilgrim on an organized trip is such a, a luxury because you absolutely don't have to know anything. You can just be, really, and I, toward the end I became curious as to where we were and where we were going. But I didn't even look at the itinerary for the first half of the trip. I just, you know, we'd get out and somebody would tell me where we were. I started wanting to read the Bible. I mean, I wasn't, I, I would know in the morning where we were heading so I could look at the Bible. But um, I would usually just find a corner and just sit down and meditate. And every single place I went was just wonderful. And I became so disconnected from um, normal concerns but I was still myself darn it <laughs> and it was just so annoying to me how how egoic self-definition just clings you know oneself as the doer just it's it's stunningly difficult to extricate and when master says that people don't realize that in that complete humility, that complete, absolute stillness and acting only as God inspires one to act without any um, compelled, egoically compelled inclination. He said that is the greatest miracle. And there's just no question to, 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 to be so conscious of the divine flow and so disidentified with the individual being that we are accustomed to being is beyond miraculous. And it's what we spend all of these incarnations trying to get over. Swamiji writes in somewhere in the Bhagavad Gita commentary, he talks about, he he gives a very clear and long explanation of all the different stages of realization, um, including what's Jivan Mukta, and the jivan mukta is one who is freed while living. The jiva is still incarnated as an individual, but has attained moksha, is, is liberated, but they're still acting through their body. Master says, Swami writes there, that a jivan mukta has no more ego, and therefore cannot accrue any more karma, but there is still some identification, there's still some karma lingering from the past. But... It doesn't matter to the Jivan Mukta about that karma because his consciousness is free. But sometimes he lets that karma continue because it gives him a reason to keep incarnating to help people. It's, a, it's complicated, but it's very interesting. But the Jivan Mukta can at any point dissolve that karma. And the karma is, Swami described it as this sense of identification with past lives. So Swami gives actual instructions on how to do it. You know, how to meditate, how to visualize, how to think about it. When I read that, when he when it was in manuscript form, I said, well, Swami, this section won't apply to very many people. And, but he answered me very seriously. There was nothing jocular at all in his response. No, he said, but those to whom it does apply will find it very helpful. Just completely serious like that. You know, sometimes I would be lighthearted and he would be very serious back. But it includes the, th- the fact that you realize that all those past incarnations, y- 
it was only God playing through you. That there, there was never any separate entity that was actually acting out all those different roles. It was only God playing through you. And you dissolve the karma, the details, it doesn't apply to me, so I didn't remember it in detail. But you visualize those experiences or you return to those experiences. I, I don't remember exactly how he put it. And you just see that I never was a separate entity and all lingering thought that you were is dissolved in that action. I think that's probably a very poor explanation. So, but that, that's the basic idea. But it returned to me. The thought of that returned to me often on this journey because I was so delighted to be able to meditate deeply and so astonished how self-definition followed me continuously and then returned with a vengeance. And, and so I tried to imagine not just past incarnations, but even this one, that it isn't ever really me or something that happened yesterday or that happened 10 years ago or that happened when I was a child, that it was never really me. It was just the spirit of God flowing through me and there never was any individual separate from that. Try it a little bit and you'll realize that complete humility (laughs) is really a miracle. And where you have to be in your consciousness to be so completely impersonal about everything that happens. And Master just makes this simple statement that you can have powers and do miraculous things. You know, there are many yogis who have lots of powers But that doesn't mean that they have anything but powers because humility is the greater miracle. It's really wonderful to contemplate. Also, for all of us, again, coming back to the theme of where I started, and this is what I'll end with, the spiritual path really looks different than we think it is. And I've really come to appreciate how how people who, you know, many people that we know who who, who don't, have that much of an external persona often are very, very, very deep because they're just, it isn't about accomplishment. It isn't about what you do. Swami writes, you know, even Sister Gyanamata, she was, she was very humble, especially when she became ill. She was very humble. She was very understated. Master said she was the most advanced disciple, woman disciple that he had. But she, she didn't have much conversation. Raja C. Swami said had no small talk at all. He just was in a high state of consciousness. When Swami first met Gyanamata, he, he very first, he, she gave him unfortunate news that Master wasn't around and so on like that. But later he writes in the path, he said he remembered her eyes. And he suddenly realized that he was dealing with someone quite different than he had thought. You know, and so we ourselves have to see ourselves in that light. It's not a question of what we look like or what we do. It's a question of whether or not we are bound by the ego principle or whether we have the miracle of humility. It's, it's, it's a, a wonderful meditation and widely one of the most useful that we can do. So... That's where we'll stop for tonight. We covered four conversations. We went from 321 through 324. All right. 
We'll do another class next week. Is next week Thanksgiving week? So we'll do another class next Tuesday and then we'll stop for the whole year. We'll take December off.